Please rise in body or spirit for our call to worship. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart. be seated. Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and welcome to our service of worship, both those of us here in the sanctuary and those of us worshiping in other locations through our live stream. We are ever mindful that the word of welcome we extend is a word of welcome founded in the grace of Jesus Christ, and as such, it is a word of welcome that has no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. Christ welcomes all, and so in his name do we. We are glad and grateful for your presence with us in worship today. Before we move into the body of the service, I'd just like to highlight a handful of things for you. The first is, you'll note that your worship leaders do take our masks off to do our speaking parts. That is, as a nod to those with hearing loss, but everyone in the chancel is fully vaccinated. And I remind everyone, the uh, city of Philadelphia is under a mask mandate currently. 
Uh, with that noted, I would also like to call to your attention that uh, we, are, we have set up a portal for you to give to Presbyterian Disaster Assistance if you are seeking a way to offer care to those affected by the earthquakes in Haiti or by the hurricanes that are headed toward us even now. And in the week to come, our mission committee will be looking at some opportunities that we might participate in assisting with refugee resettlement uh, here in Philadelphia as well. All of these are opportunities. And if you would like to give to those directly, just note on the check that it's for disaster, or you may note that through PayPal. And of course, Vanco, if you use that, gives you an option to do so. Finally, I'd like to, to tease a save the date for you for the final Sunday in September. That's the 26th. If the way be clear, and if we can find a way to do it, we're looking to find a way to have an outdoor luncheon following church on that day uh, so that we could be out in the fresh air and, uh, and able to share fellowship with one another in that way. Hold on to that date. We'd love to see you there. We'll let you know more as we get closer to that time, whether that will be a possibility for us or not. With these announcements noted, let us continue our worship now with the confession of sin. With sincere hearts and minds, let us confess our sins before God and the world, first together and then in silence, trusting in God's mercy to forgive. Gracious God, we confess there are times when the walk of faith seems to go on and on. There are times when your claim on our lives seems costly. There are times when we would turn aside onto an easier path rather than face what your presence with us would elicit from us. Forgive us when we fail to do and be what you have called for from us. Forgive us when we cannot remember that you are always with us. And in forgiving us, give us encouragement that we may be strengthened in our faith and live out the calling you have given us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, do not despair. God renews us by the word of truth that we might become the first fruits of God's creation. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first scripture reading comes to us from the book of Song of Solomon. In the second chapter, starting with the eighth verse. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. 
The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our lands. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Here ends our first reading. The second lesson is taken from the epistle of James. We read in the first chapter, beginning at the 17th verse and continuing through the 27th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Every generous act of giving, with every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of God's own purpose, he gave us the birth of the word of truth, so that we would become the kind of first fruits of God's creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves, and on going away, immediately forget what they are like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, not being hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If anything, they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts. Their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.
Over the last couple of weeks, I have found myself remembering Khaled Hosseini's novel, The Kite Runner. When I first read this novel, I initially thought his writing was clumsy, the picture painted with too broad a brush, leaving evidence of the writer's handiwork. Then about two-thirds of the way through it, I decided that the author intended for me to see his brushstrokes, prompting me then to anticipate what would happen next. And after I had anticipated correctly a couple of times, I decided that he was clearly brilliant and that I was brilliant to recognize it. Then the novel took on a different flavor, a more epic flavor, as I saw archetypes of violence and grace, good and evil, sin and redemption. It is with all of these things that Christians concern ourselves. Now, I don't want to spoil the novel if you haven't read it, but it's been out a while, and the element of surprise is not necessary to take Hosseini's point. In fact, actually, he deliberately writes out the element of surprise. The the implication of actions taken early in the novel are lived out in the second half, as the second half of the novel is a mirror image of the first half. And good begets good, and evil begets evil, and the characters live out their lives. But along the way, as life happens, the distinctions between purely good and purely evil become murky, as they often have a way of happening in real life. It is a tug of war between good motives and selfish motives that plays out through the telling of the story of two friends. It is an unequal friendship between an athletic servant and a bookish, introverted son of a wealthy man. Hassan is the servant, and Amir is the child of wealth. Amir's father takes particular interest in the servant boy, providing for his education, his health care, and he even goes so far as to foster the friendship between his painfully shy son who is somewhat snobbish, and, uh, and, and Hassan, who is the son of his servant. Amir, we learn, struggles with deep feelings of inadequacy and is plagued at times with a nagging sense that Hassan is the son his father always wanted. So plagued is he by this that in an effort to secure his father's approval, Amir zealously hones his skills in the favorite pastime of the boys of Afghanistan in his childhood, kite fighting. As Hosseini narrates the novel, we learn that there are two means of gaining stature in the kite fighting community. First, as the kite fighter who navigates the skies with a essentially a fiercely armored kite, and then as the kite runner who chases down the losing kite after its line has been sheared by the winning kite. Amir practices and becomes one of the best kite fighters. And Hassan, who is naturally gifted with strength and agility, becomes one of the best kite runners, making them a formidable team. 
And in the final kite-fighting tournament of the season, Amir sees his opportunity, so he thinks, to gather his father's respect, and he believes his father's love, and in an experience of elation, emerges as the victor of the biggest kite fight of the year. Once his line has cut the losing kite's line, Amir is off like a flash, chasing down the other kite to share his portion in the day's glorious events. Only in the moment of victory, just as he has snatched the kite from the air that no one else could catch because of his race, his class, and his religion, Hassan is brutally assaulted while Amir hides in the shadows, terrified to intervene. He is paralyzed by his fear. But then his shame takes over. And it is his shame that leads him to even worse actions. Fearing that his friend knew of his cowardice, Amir takes pains to cover his tracks. It begins with him simply treating his friend and his servant poorly, but then it escalates as he plants evidence of theft in his home and accuses Hassan of stealing from him. Shamed by the accusation but protesting his innocence, Hassan and his father leave the house, and Amir, through his own fault, loses a friend whose first spoken word had been his own name. What follows is the unraveling of both worlds. Amir and his father remain in the house where they had all lived, but with the arrival of the Soviets in Kabul, their world, too, comes undone. And so they flee their wealth and their privilege in an effort to save their lives. And in a reversal of fortunes, they become the servant class as they arrive as refugees in the United States. Throughout the story, Amir struggles with fear and shame. They mark him. They shape his perception of himself. They shape the decisions he makes, even into adulthood. And after his father has died, Amir receives a letter offering him the chance to seek redemption. I don't want to retell the entire story, but the letter offers him a chance to rescue Hassan's son from a perverted and evil Taliban torturer, the same man who had assaulted Hassan all those years before. What follows is a struggle for redemption. But Amir missteps. And his opportunity to gain Hassan's son's trust is missed. The fragile trust of a rescued child that must be regained can only be recovered with time 
and commitment and perseverance. And in the closing sentences of the novel, we see a glimmer of hope, but we are left with the knowledge that this struggle for redemption, this struggle for a mirror to overcome his shame and his fear, this struggle for this little boy to feel secure again is a struggle that will go on and on and on. Something about that story of sin and violence, atonement and redemption put me in mind of the grand epic into which we are all made a part with baptism. That epic, of course, is the story of claiming our call as God's people. It takes some confidence to make that claim. Because what we are doing when we speak of the ways God has claimed us is to own the fact that God has expectations of us. And those expectations must be lived out in our lives. That is what we claim at the font and at the table. And in the very act of worship, we are claiming God's call on our lives. Not to the exclusion of others, I might add, but nevertheless as an expression of the belief that God is with us, and that as God's people, we believe God will guide our steps because God is always with us. And if God is always with us, if God's presence is everywhere, then naturally that means that God's presence extends even into the intangible. God's presence extends even into the emotional peaks and valleys one encounters in the inevitable living of life. And therefore the good moments, the bad ones, and the very, very, very many in-between moments when we just are. God is there guiding our steps. God is there upholding and supporting us in ways we are not even aware of most of the time. God's presence is a presence that goes on and on and on. And I I hope that is a comfort. I suspect for many of us it is a comfort. But I wonder if sometimes... Perhaps it is not. Like Amir, who feared his friend's knowledge of his shame and cowardice, perhaps we shy from God's watchful eye from time to time. Maybe we wish God's vision weren't so keen all of the time. Perhaps we even hope that God might fall asleep for a moment. But that's not who God is. Consider the lesson of the psalmist, the God who watches over Israel, neither slumbers nor sleep. If we say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even night shall be light about me. Is it always a good thing to know that God is watching over us? Uh, Perhaps there are some things we don't want God to see. I say that somewhat flippantly. But if we have been taught to live in fear of God, if the lessons we have absorbed come not as markers of God's goodness, 
God's love in our lives. If instead, we have absorbed terror from the words of one trusted to teach us goodness. Perhaps God is a fearful word. Frankly, if we're slacking off, we wish, might wish God wasn't looking so closely while we did it. Now, pardon me for one moment, because I'm going to wax a touch elegiac here. But if the only thing I ever said from a pulpit would be heard, if only one thing I ever said would be heard, I would want to teach that God is good. That God is goodness and love and mercy. And then if I could teach a second thing, it would be to take that goodness and mercy and love seriously. James wants us to take God seriously. James wants us to take God as seriously as we take anything. I always love pointing out when James shows up in the lectionary that when the Protestant Reformation happened and all of the reformers were looking at what we ought to hold on to from our faith history and what needed to be let go of, the venerable old reformer Martin Luther would have been fairly well satisfied if we just would have left the epistle of James out of the Bible entirely because of his fear that we would mistakenly take James's words to mean that we might somehow earn God's love or favor through some sort of transactional interaction. Luther called it a right strawy epistle. But the Reformers wouldn't let it go. And I think I have a hunch why. I think the church realized the importance of taking God's word of hope and love and mercy and goodness so seriously that we cannot help but have it shape how we see God and how we see life as a result. Because James holds in very low regard those who have heard the word of God and lightly moved away from it. He says it's like people who looked in a mirror, saw themselves, and as soon as they turned away, forgot what they even looked like. No, James wants God's word to make a more lasting impression. He wants us to take the assurance of God's presence and God's mercy and God's love seriously when he says to us, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And in this moment, James doesn't bother hiding his brushstrokes. He wants us to be crystal clear that we are to be shaped by our encounters with the Holy One and not be like the folks he encounters who cannot remember from one moment to the next who it is they fundamentally are in the claiming of God's call in their lives. Because if indeed we believe that God has claimed us in love, if we have claimed that calling that God knows where we are and when we rise up and when we sit down, if we believe that when we come to the end of our days, God will be present with us, then James is saying, let there be some evidence that that is the case now. Otherwise, for what purpose would we gather and listen to the word of God? I'm going to ask you a question, and it is going to sound like a pedantic question, 
but it's an important one for all of us to encounter at some point in our lives and to make answer to. It is this. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? Have you ever met someone who is so absorbed in the love of God that they're just a little bit off? That's what James wants for all of us. That's what James wants from all of us, to be so absorbed in the love of God that our way of encountering the world is just a little bit off. Just a little bit off from the way the rest of the world works. James wants us to abide in the fact of God's enduring presence, God's never-failing love, to know that God has been here, God is here right now, and God will always be here with us, on and on and on, as long as we possibly shall live and into whatever life comes beyond. And James suggests that if we have absorbed that fact, if it is part of who we are, then it ought to have some lasting effect on us. We ought to be able to see it and feel it and show it. It is a call that goes on and on and on. God is here right now in this moment, right where you are. And what does that mean for what you must do? Because God has a way of haunting us until we do what God is calling us to do. I love the way one of my favorite theologians puts it. There are some things I would be willing even to bet my life on. That life is grace, for instance, the givenness of it, the fathomlessness of it, the endless possibilities of its becoming transparent to something extraordinary beyond itself, that, as I picked up somewhere in Jung and whittled into the ash stick that I use for tramping through the woods sometimes, vocatus atqua non vocatus deus aderit, which I take to mean that in the long run, whether you call on God or don't call on God, God will be present with you. That if we really had our eyes open, we would see that all moments are key moments. That he who does not love remains in death. That Jesus is the word made flesh who dwells among us full of grace and truth. On good days, I might add a few more to the list. On bad days, it's possible there might be a few less. And then he concludes, All I can do with real assurance is once more to echo my old teacher, Paul Tillich, 
to the effect that here and there, even in our world, and now and then, even in ourselves, we catch glimpses of a new creation, which, fleeting as those glimpses are apt to be, give us hope for this life and for whatever life may await us later on. And when we become doers of the word, when God guides our steps, we move that new creation just a little bit closer to the here and now. What a way to live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
let us together confess what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above. Filled by God's generosity, let us offer our gifts with gladness through Jesus Christ our Lord.
Beloved one, you have called us to your embrace, and our hearts overflow with your goodness. Your power endures forever. Your, you reign with justice and love righteousness. Let the fragrance of your love and the grace on your lips anoint us now as we pray for the church, the creation, and all those in need. Arise, God of love, come to our aid. Unshackle your church from bondage to human tradition, that we may worship you freely and serve others with a pure heart. Redeem and renew your creation to bud, blossom, and bring forth fruit as we care for the land and love one another. This morning, we especially lift up all of those who are suffering or are in the paths of natural disasters, for those dealing with wildfires, for Haiti recovering from an earthquake, for those who have been struck by hurricanes, and for those on the Gulf Coast where a hurricane is making landfall as we pray. Arise, God of love, and come to our aid. Extend your reign of compassionate justice in our nations and neighborhoods as we unite with people of goodwill to do right for those in need. This week, we especially lift up those in Afghanistan where there is chaos and uncertainty and fear. And we lift up other countries where this is also the everyday reality for those in Yemen and Ethiopia and so many places. Arise, God of love, come to our aid. Let us embrace the distressed, the diseased, the devalued, and the denied. Cause us to care for the abandoned, the bereaved, the weak, and the weary. We lift up those who are struggling with COVID, who have long-term effects or are sick now, We pray for countries who don't have the vaccine access yet and are trying to keep themselves safe until it comes. Arise, God of love, come to our aid. Make us be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let us persevere in your perfect law of liberty and bless us to do your word. Clothe those we remember now with your fragrant fragrant grace and renewing love. Hear the names we say in our hearts. Anointed with your oil of gladness, let our prayers rise as fragrant incense before you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. 
In the Reformed tradition, we believe the Word of God comes to us in three ways, through Scripture, through preaching, and those are both subordinate to the Word of God made incarnate, the Word of God in Jesus Christ. So, the message of James is be doers of Jesus Christ, not hearers only. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and to those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.